This podcast is sponsored by Midwest Loan Services, a leading provider of mortgage loan subservicing. Mortgage subservicing is a highly demanding and regulated discipline that requires precise expertise to handle thousands of complex tasks. That's why lenders nationwide trust Midwest Loan Services to simplify loan servicing, reduce their costs, and mitigate their compliance risk. Learn more at MidwestLoanServices.com. From the Credit Union National Association, this is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. When Mark Schaefer retires from Truliant Federal Credit Union at the end of 2019, he doesn't want the focus to be on what he did as an individual, but rather on what the credit union has done for its members. I'm Jennifer Plager, a senior editor with CUNA. I recently sat down with Schaefer, CEO of the $2.6 billion asset credit union in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, to talk about his upcoming retirement, what's changed during his 25 years of leading the credit union, his advocacy efforts, and more. Mark, you'll be retiring at the end of 2019. How are you feeling? I feel great. I feel really great. I mean, that's you know, 25 years at Truliant, and then uh, nine years before that as CEO of FDIC Credit Union. So that's 34, and then uh, four years at U.S. Postal as controller. So 38 years, you know. And, you know, I made a conscious decision to stay at Truliant as opposed to, you know, bouncing on to the next one and the next one. And, and I, my goal was to build something that was meaningful. And when I look back, it is. It is meaningful what we've built, the culture and the Scale. The scale has, has really um, has risen, but but helped a lot of people and built a culture, and then left something behind. You know, the last you know four or five years, I've been focused mostly on uh, the continuation of that culture through the leadership that followed me. So um, yeah, I feel great about it. I don't know that you could walk away feeling much better than than I do about true land and stepping away. Of course, you know, there's always bittersweet. Everybody asks me on Monday, is it bittersweet? Of course, it's bittersweet. You know, you're going to miss the people. But if you had to draw out a career and, and draw out how it came to its conclusion, you couldn't draw out anything much better than, than I have. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I feel good about it. I feel great. You've been at True Lion for 25 years. And during that time, the credit union has experienced a lot of growth in assets and members. What were some of the reasons why you believe that growth happened? Well, and those those both tie back together. So I remember when we hit a billion in assets, and then all the reporters said, "Hey, you hit a billion," and I said, "Well, you know, you got to put all that in perspective. All that means in the credit union context is that we had a lot of consumers that chose us, that trusted us to help them with guidance and with their deposits and their loans, and helping them build a financial foundation. That's all that means in the credit union context. It's not, hey, we're you know." Or a trillion dollars on Jamie Dimon or whatever. It, it's a whole different thing. And so we are, you know, we are over two and a half billion now. We've had 250,000 members. But again, in the credit union context, you know, you have to approach all that with a fair amount of humility because at the end of the day, what we do is we take families, many of whom are middle income to even lower income, and we help them improve their lives. So you don't want to get too big headed about that and throw around this, this asset numbers and such. But the way we, you know, did that and what accounts for that growth is that culture. It's the connecting with the consumer uh, on that cellular level where 
we say to them, look, we're, we're something different. We can actually help you figure out how to reach your goals, give you guidance that's in your best interest. And if we do that well, of course, you do that through your people. You do that who you hire and how you treat them. And you end up with more and more consumers saying, hey, I, I do like that. I like that alternative. You know, I always talk about Wells Fargo is the gift that keeps on giving. You know, I mean, the banking industry has has kind of handed us, you know, a fair amount of opportunity because of the, you know, the obvious approach that they take to sales. And then things like bank transfer day and, and you know, a variety of other societal elements have, have kind of paved the way for consumers to seek alternatives to traditional commercial banking. And so, you know, I think just the combination of all those things, some societal, but, you know, we were prepared. I mean, we laid the groundwork through this culture of genuine acknowledgement that the member is at the center of all we do, and then hiring people that wanted to work in that environment, uh, mostly former bankers, because you hit scale, uh, you really need people that can can operate at scale, and, and brought them over to the idea that this is about the consumer, and you don't have to work in this kind of cutthroat environment of the banking industry. And you guys have a way that you can keep track of how your members are feeling. You have that obelisk at your headquarters that visualizes <laughs> that satisfaction. What's the story behind that? And what, how'd you, how'd you come up with well, that? Well, I will say that's not the primary method. We do a thing called true financial checkup where we're talking to the member and we're capturing their wants, hopes, dreams, needs, and all of that. But the obelisk came about when we, we uh, outgrew our, our headquarters, which was brand new when I came down in 95. We just built a building. We outgrew it in 10 years. And we built a, a much larger building across the other side of Interstate 40. And when we were building the building, um, one of the architects said, you know, uh, some companies now are, are kind of doing a place finder where they, they kind of build something on the property where somebody drives by and say, oh, that's, you know, that's Truliant. So somewhere, uh, I forget how we came up with this idea that we should take one of our sun rays from our logo and just take one sun ray and stick it up out of the ground and, <laughs> and it ended up being 64 feet tall. And then I was I was flying across the country to a meeting or something. I, I was reading one of the uh, news magazines about this ambient orb that a guy named David Rose at MIT had come up with that basically reflected people's feelings um, color through color. So and it could change, you know, and then you could put any data in it, and it would and the color would represent uh, the data. Since we had this culture of you know how do we how do we reflect our members understand the mission that it's about them. And why don't we put that into the color? And so we came up with this idea that we would survey our member. I think it's every fifth member that does a true financial checkup is asked two questions. One is your basic satisfaction question. Are you satisfied product price service? The other question is the one that banks don't ask, which is, do you feel a part of TrueLiant? Which is kind of a weird question, but, you know, do you understand you're the member, you're the owner, we're here? The only reason we exist is for you to help improve your life. So are you part of TrueLiant? And those two pieces of data go into the, um, the database, which then is transmitted to the lighting system, which then reflects that. So as long as, um, you know, I think it's over, it's 80% of, of the members say they feel a part of TrueLiant. It's blue. It's a bright blue. But if, if it falls off, either satisfaction or recognition of member ownership, it can go green, yellow. And then I say after that, I get a pink slip, so don't let that happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's a visual, constant 15-minute uh, reminder to ourselves that we're accountable for our members and not forgetting 
that they are why we're here. They're the mission. And so uh, it got a lot of press play and all, which was great. It was, and uh, none of that hurts. But it's also useful to tell everybody when they come aboard, you know, this is one of the ways we hold ourselves accountable for keeping focus on on the member and understanding uh, who the member is and, and them recognizing that they are the ones that, that really control what we do. Now, you are heavily involved in, in HR 1151. Can you talk a little bit about your role, how how and why you got involved and, and what that decision ultimately meant for the movement then and today? In July of 96, there was a court ruling. I was aware that the American Bankers Association had sued the National Credit Administration in 1990 because NCUA had allowed credit unions to bring in companies that weren't part of the original sponsor company under field of membership. And I was aware of it, but nobody, I don't think anybody thought it was going to go anywhere. But in July of 96, the American Bankers Association got standing in the U.S. District Court of Appeals. So that meant that the court system felt that the bankers may have uh, have a case. So that was very concerning to us. The lawsuit itself emanated in our market in one of our little towns where we had added a branch to serve a furniture factory that was not part of AT&T. So they basically targeted uh, NCUA through us because NCUA had granted us the ability to serve this furniture factory. I was astounded by that, that the banking industry would stop us from serving you know, factory workers. So I went down to this little town, and there were 13 finance companies in this town of uh, 30,000 people. So I, I actually had a, filmed uh, the um, doors of each finance company. Some were, were owned by Citibank and, and uh, First Union. And, and so banks were serving these people through finance, triple digit and loans and that type of thing. So obviously the banks weren't really willing to serve this population. So I took that video up to D.C. And um, when the uh, July um, finding came out, the District Court of Appeals I got a call from the from the general counsel at NCUA saying you cannot add any more companies, just you, not not the rest of the credit union system. So I went up to D.C. and I talked to Frank Mankiewicz, who was with Hill and Knowlton. He'd been Bobby Kennedy's press secretary and a very famous guy. And um, he saw my video. He looked at my video and he said, you know, I think you got something here. You know, the American public would find this interesting that, you know, the banking industry would not let you serve these factory workers in Ashboro, and they got all these finance companies there. Uh, in October of that year, the um, NCUA told everybody, all the credits, you cannot add any new companies. And there was talk, well, the lawsuit itself was actually implied that the banking industry would, would require this, this wonderful word called disgorgement, where we would actually have to eject from membership everybody who had joined that was not part of the original company, AT&T. So long story short, it, it wended its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in February of 98, the Supreme Court did decide that the 1934 Federal Credit Union Act, that a credit union can only serve one company. Now, in between that um, time in 90, July of 96, and particularly October of 96, when we, we kind of bumped the two heads of the two trade associations together in Chicago, the large credit unions called, I was on the NAFCA board, and we called the a meeting of the National Credit Roundtable, which at the time was independent of NCUA or NAFQ. And we, we summoned the CEOs of NAFQ, and uh, I was actually on the, on the NAFQ board, 
uh, with General Robinson and uh, Dan Micah had just uh, become CEO of CUNA. And we summoned them to Chicago uh, and we, we said, look, you guys got to work together. Because after I'd gone up to uh, D.C. in July, I had visited with several PR companies and they said, whatever you do, don't attack the banking industry head on. You can't win. They got more lobbyists. They got more money. You've got to make it about what it really is. Uh, it's consumers option to join a credit union, not banks versus credit unions, because you will lose that. Well, NAFQ, in spite of that advice, which I passed on to them, uh, came out with a program called Beat Back the Bankers, which was exactly the wrong approach. And then CUNA came out two weeks later with a project called Operation Secure, which sounded like we were invading Panama. Anyway, we, we had to get them on the same page, which we did in Chicago. And we then formed the National Campaign for Consumer Choice. Each of the trade associations got to assign people. Anyway, this group of people worked out of the Watergate at Till and Knowlton and put together this national campaign. And then in each state, like in North Carolina, we used this company, APCO, and built our own grassroots campaign. And so from July of 96, or basically October of 96, till when the Supreme Court ruled against us in February of 98, we had built this very powerful grassroots campaign. And we had gotten most of our members of the, of the legislature to say, look, if the Supreme Court goes against you, then we will pass your bill, H.R. 1151, which will protect your members. And so that was, that's basically what happened. They, they voted, you know, the Supreme Court, uh, went against us in, uh, February of 98. And then in August of 98, we passed, uh, H.R. 1151, the Credit Membership Access Act. Overwhelmingly, it was almost nobody voting against us. And, um, President Clinton signed it into law in August of 98, which made moot the Supreme Court decision. And the outcome of that is that credit unions can serve more than one company, which was huge because otherwise, you know, most Americans would not have access to a credit union. I think that victory also kind of put the banking industry kind of back on its heels. And, you know, they realized that we we had political power and we weren't going to just get kind of slapped around by the banking industry, as has always happened. Did your experiences with H.R. 1151 kind of nudge you in impact your involvement in, in advocacy and make you realize that this is something that we need to build at our credit union? We basically took the model that we set up to be victorious in HR 1151 and said, you know, we, we will never be in a position again where a member of Congress or a senator does not know or a president does not know what credit unions are or um, is so on the side of the banking industry that, that our members are imperiled. And so we we actually took those structures that we built to be effective with HR 1151 and institutionalized them into what we do. And so now we make regular visits up to Capitol Hill. I know every congressman in our uh, markets, many of them on a first name basis. I know their spouses. I know their children. I know their dogs. You know, they call me. Uh, we have a political action committee. We are able to fund, help fund campaigns. We were there with them all the time. We have to be. No, we will never be in that position again. We will always know politically what's going on. What have been some of the biggest changes in the credit union industry during the course of your career? Well, you know, one thing I do think more people know what a credit union is. Uh, we're not there yet, but, you know, we have a third of the U.S. population is a member of a credit union. I think uh, people recognize that credit are able to serve all their needs. You know, we're not in a church basement or only doing car loans or only doing certificates. We, we can do it all. We're here to provide guidance. 
We're here to uh, help them make decisions in their own best interest. I think many, many more consumers understand that. I think society's changed somewhat. Uh, certainly, society has become more, I don't know, socially conscious, if you want to call it that. And, and um, you have to remember, I, when I came into the to the whole credit system, uh, we had the SNL crisis, which cost you know the, the taxpayer hundreds of millions, not billions of dollars. And then we had the financial crisis again, you know, brought on by by bad. Uh, decisions in the in the banking industry, so we've had major major disruptions to the economy and to people. You know, people's lives and lost jobs and lost you know 401ks and lost this and lost that. And so I think consumers are more open to alternatives like a credit union as long as we can provide what they want. I mean, they're not going to you know make any sacrifices for us. They want all the, the latest mobile uh, access. They want good rates. And of course we we generally have offered better loan rates and better uh, deposit rates and lower fees than the banking industry anyway. But uh we have to have the digital access of course, which we do. And we came out of AT&T Bell Labs, so we've always been ahead of the technology curve, but we have to convince people that we have that, we can do that, and, and irrespective of where they live or where they travel, we can always be there to help them. Uh, the digital world has actually helped to level that playing field because we can, you know, we can provide all that access irrespective of where people live. We don't have to have branches on every corner, and so I think that a lot of a lot of good things have happened, both from a technology standpoint, from a societal standpoint. But we do have to make the consumer, particularly younger consumers, aware of what a crane is and why we're different and why it's better and why they should give us a chance. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just an option. We're an option to the banking industry. But people have to be aware that it's a viable option for them. And then we have to execute on, on the promises we make to them. So I, I think a lot of things have changed that have you know been beneficial to us. From a regulatory standpoint, we're not successful in getting ourselves understood in D.C. that, hey, we're, we're different and you should treat us differently. But I think we made a little bit of headway there. Other than that, I think for the most part, we've been very fortunate that a lot of good things have come our way. And we've worked hard. Credits have worked very hard to um, to stay true to the mission and to convince the consumer that we're a viable option for them to consider. What do you think some of the biggest threats are to the movement that people need to pay attention to in the future? We do have to be careful as we get larger that we don't forget why we're here. You know, we're not we're not banks. We don't need any more banks. And the banks are massive. You know, you put all of us together and we're not, you know, we're the size of one bank. I will say that we've got to be really careful to understand what not to do, even though we might be able to rationalize it because we might say, well, you know, we would actually make some money on this. We could then share that with our members through low loan rates, higher savings rates, lower fees. But be really, really careful. And, and it's okay to not do some things because just because some others do it at our scale and because we collaborate so well, we can very well continue to compete on technology. We have good relationships in fintech. Uh, we've got lots of QSOs. So I'm, I'm not worried about that. I think talent is an issue. I think we've done a good job of attracting uh, talent from the banking industry, which is typically where it's going to come from because they, they understand the scale. I, I think we're going to be okay there. I think people would want to come over uh, to credit unions. So um, I don't know. I just, you know, we got to keep working on hill on the hill and make sure people understand the difference between a credit union and a bank and continue to give us the opportunity to provide that choice to the consumer. But I'm I'm not too worried about it. I mean, I've I've <laughs> there's, there's been existential uh, moments for the credit union system, like back in uh, 1998 with the uh, 
the lawsuit with the tax reform not long ago. That could have been an existential moment. It certainly is a threat. If people don't understand that large credit unions serve more middle-income families than small credit unions, uh, you run this risk that people don't understand that big credit unions are not banks. And somehow, you know, you could tax the big credit unions and leave the little credit unions in place, and then you everything would be hunky-dory. If you were to divide the big cranes from the small cranes, you would lose the access for most consumers and middle-income households to affordable financial services within the credit union model. So that's a, that's a um, always a threat that somehow people think because it's big, it's different, and it's not. It's, you know, the, the large credit unions serve the lion's share of the middle-income consumers in this country, and you have to keep them in that form. There's always a concern in D.C., having been in D.C., somebody's going to come along and say, hey, let's merge the uh, regulators, let's merge the OCC, the FDIC, and the NCUA, and let's merge the insurance funds. And That's always a threat because people think, hey, that's going to be efficient. Well, it's not efficient and it's not effective. Credit unions are different than banks. We have a different risk pool. We have a very strong national credit insurance, insurance fund that's separate, still, you know, still backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. But it needs to be separate. We need a separate regulator that understands the difference between a credit union and a bank. People like Rodney Hood, who you know really get it. They, you know, uh, you don't want bankers, uh, you know, mixed in with with credit union people to um, regulate an industry that is unique and has its own characteristics. You know, having been at FDIC, and I love the people at FDIC and my board were just fantastic professionals, but we would get swallowed up and lost in the regulatory um, realm if NCUA was not treated separately and if we didn't have our own share insurance fund, which in many ways is better than the um, than the banking funds because it's self-policing, right? You know, we have to keep it at a certain level. If our brethren make big mistakes, like with the uh, taxi cab medallions or whatever, we all have to pitch in money and make good on it and, and build up our own insurance fund. It's a good system. It works really well. It's worked really well for many, many years. And But there's always a threat that somebody will come along and say, hey, you know, not understand it and say, hey, let's merge these regulators or let's treat large cranes different than small credit unions or so there's there's always these risks out there, but I, I think you know we've done really well, but we have to work continue to work very hard to make sure people understand who we are, what we do, and why why it works and why it's going to continue to work and why it's so viable and important. You know, we provide this stability and this option for the consumer and the small business that is really critical to the system. But there's always going to be dangers. It's a, it's a competitive environment, but I think we've done well. I think we're strong enough now where I feel like it'd be very difficult to significantly change our ability to uh, continue to serve the consumer and the small business in the United States. Mark, what kind of advice do you have for for future leaders in the credit union movement? I think they really need to just continue to recognize who we are and who we're not, what we're here to do, and and how do we do that better and better. And um, I think as we've grown... I know in the case of Truliant, we've been able to attract more and more talent, dare I say, even better talent. (laughs) And so um, it's just a great uh, opportunity to perfect the mission, if you will, uh, as long as we stay focused on what our job is, which is to improve the consumer's life while running safe and sound financial institutions, no doubt. But we have to differentiate ourselves. You have to continuously differentiate yourself. I mean, what what does that mean to the consumer? 
And in the digital space, you know, that gets harder and harder because sometimes it seems more you know, transactional. And so as my successor, Todd Hall, says, in our case, we have to true lionize even the digital channels. We have to make the consumer see, feel, and understand this is different. This is a, a credit union version that helps you live a better financial life. And it's not easy to find those those opportunities and then to effectively um, make them real to the consumer, make it compelling and, and, um, and viable. So I think there's lots of challenges ahead uh, for all financial institutions and cranes in particular. But I think we have a, an advantage, a huge advantage and that the consumer and and just people that you know want to work for a financial institution are going to prefer this model that does good while they personally do well. And um, so I, I would just caution people to not wake up one morning and say, hey, somehow I forgot the key point here. <laughs> and the key point is, did you improve the member's life? Is the member's life getting better? And do they realize it? Are we telling them that? Are they? Are we listening to them? Is it embedded? Is it ingrained in the people that work for us? Is that what they want to do? Are they connecting with that consumer in a, ver- in a very real level, getting the feedback they need to continuously improve our offerings so that uh, more and more consumers want it? It doesn't happen by itself. Uh, I told my our team on Monday that the three things I'm grateful for as I step away is one, they get it. You know, our I can tell you I listen to calls from our member contact center and I talk to people all the time. They get it. Our people actually understand what they're doing, why they're doing it. We know the why. Everybody that works for Triant knows why we do what we do. They know the how, they know the what, but they really know the why. And then I'm I'm grateful that they allowed me to lead them for so long. Leaders are not, um, yeah, your board hires you and all, but you get to lead because your people let you lead and, and they believe in you and they follow you. But that comes from them yeah, as much as it comes from the authority of it, if you will. And then uh, the third thing was just, I feel like I've left a really good team in place. Um, I shouldn't say I've left. I mean, they've, they've stepped up and ensured that the whole process of the mission that was put in place will be continued into the future. And that's not always a given. You know, sometimes there's disruption when somebody steps away. But I can see, and we spent seven years doing it, so and the board was very deliberate with it, um, I can see that the path will be continued and, and made better because they're, like I said, their talent is better <laughs> than it was, you know, 25 years ago. Our talent is better. Our scale is bigger. There's so many tools that we have now that we didn't have when we were smaller. Yeah, there's some challenges out there, but I think we have wonderful opportunities. And um, I'm sure that not only True Lion, but I think credit union system in general will continue to take advantage of those. And, and we'll see more and more consumers have access to the affordable financial services and the guidance that we offer. What do you hope people remember you for? I hope that people you know, value that we and my team, obviously nobody does this alone. You do it as a team. We helped improve a ton of people's lives over the 25 years I was CEO. I mean, just think of all of the um, the car loans to help people get to work and home loans to help people have a place to live and student loans and, and uh, everything we've done to help people improve their life. We've done usually at lower rates, lower fees, and with better guidance and better outcomes. And then all the people that have worked for TrueLiant, that have experienced the culture of TrueLiant, and some of whom have taken it elsewhere and have gone to other credit unions or even back into banking. 
that's fulfilling. So, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. Did we, did we make somebody's life better? Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. This podcast was sponsored by Midwest Loan Services, a leading provider of mortgage loan subservicing. Learn more at MidwestLoanServices.com.